Good morning and welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Um, we are taking a little hiatus uh, from our usual uh, delving into a book of the Bible. And we're going to take three weeks uh, to look at... Uh, there we go. To look at worship. And I know some of you may be wondering why. Why are we studying uh, worship uh, in this short three weeks? And I, today I just want to talk about a, a, sort of the most basic reason of why, uh, the basic level. Um, I think it's foundational. It's fundamental uh, to who we are. Uh, in fact, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure that there's anything more central than that. That's a pretty bold claim, I realize, but I think our worship uh, or worship in general is of all the things of the Christian faith is is, and of who we are as humans uh, is central. Um, I would say it's who we are. We are worshipers. It's what, it's what we are. And uh, we do this week in and week out. We come together in corporate worship, specifically, um, as an expression uh, of our worship to God. But um, I would just say in general, as creatures, and not even... Not even just humans, but all creatures are made to worship. My dad, uh, child of the 60s, and he's not here so I can talk about him. Um, My dad, the child of the 60s that he is, always loved to quote the Bob Dylan song, got to serve somebody, right? And for some of you, this is familiar. For some of you younger folk, you should listen to Bob Dylan. (laughs) Um, yeah, but you got to have, he says, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. I, I, I feel like I'm channeling my father right there. I, I know multiple sermons where he quoted that. Uh, we are made to worship. And as people, we can't help it. We, we just, we can't help it. The question is... Whom or what do we worship? And to help us think about this, uh, I want us to turn our attention to Revelation 19. We're going to be looking at the first ten verses. It's printed for you in your bulletins, or you can turn with me there in your Bibles. I want to think about this core reality of who we are as worshipers. Hear God's word. This is Revelation 19, verses 1 uh, to ten. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forevermore. And forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and all its mystery and, and, and power and wonder. We thank you for Jesus, the Lord and the King and the Judge of heaven and earth. And we ask that you would help us to know what it means to bring you worship uh, this morning. We pray for your help in understanding your text, your word. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm always a little wary of jumping into a book like Revelation. It's not... it's not a, a great place to go because it, it begs all sorts of questions. And it's uh, easy to take Scripture out of its context. And um, I think Revelation especially, um, there's so much going on in it. And it is in many ways an enigmatic text. There's lots of symbology and lots of... Uh, it's, a, it's apocalyptic, right? There's, there's, there's challenges to the text and in, in, in interpretation. Um, it, At the center, though, of the vision of John here in Revelation uh, is this person, the conquering king and lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the earth. That's that's the the focal point of the whole book of Revelation is this, this person, Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation paints for us a grand sweeping story picture of Christ's redeeming work throughout history. And it was given to John and written down by him as a way of encouraging the church on its march towards glory. Uh, even in the midst of suffering, as we've looked at in First Peter, even in the midst of the challenges that the church faces this side of glory, it is meant to be a picture of the glorious conquering Christ and to give us encouragement as we march on. And in the midst of this revelation of John, periodically throughout, this is a, there's repetition and retelling of the cosmic story from different angles over and over again throughout the book of Revelation and punctuated within this retelling and recapitulation of the story of Revelation is these throne room scenes or are these throne room scenes where we get a glimpse of the glorified Christ where the angels and all the the beings of heaven and all the saints are surrounding the throne and giving praise. And maybe the greatest of all of these scenes is here in Revelation 19. Um, So as we consider worship this morning, I want us to think in terms of the end. 
right? This is the end. Re- Revelation 19, and it, it continues there on uh, in Revelation, but it's, it's the, the glorious picture of the king who has conquered coming into his kingdom and being worshipped and praised. It's the picture of the bridegroom coming at his wedding feast to the bride. These two pictures kind of pieced together. And it's the, the grand culmination or consummation of what our end is as the people of God, gathered round the glorious throne of Christ. And as we consider worship, I want us to think in terms of the end. Now, it is easy when we talk about worship to get bogged down in the details of worship, how we worship, the music we use, the order of worship, the vibe, if you will, of worship. Um, and, And while those things are not unimportant, they are not the thing in themselves. They're not the main thing. In many ways, they're incidental. And I don't mean that to say that they they have no significance or that we do them willy-nilly. I don't think Presbyterians are charged with worshiping Um, (laughs) willy-nilly. I don't don't think that's the case. But they are not the central thing. This morning, I want us to focus on the main thing, to be enraptured by the main thing. I want us to see Jesus as the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. That what we do here, week in and week out, is just a a small foretaste and preparation of what is to come, of what we read here in Revelation 19. I want us to... To, to sing to one another the words of Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. That, that's my desire. Friends, my invitation for you and for me, for all of us, is to come to worship the King of Kings. And I'm going to look at this in three parts here in uh, Chapter 19 of Revelation. First, worshiping the king begins with weeping. That's a strange place to start. We'll talk about that in just a minute. The second thing I want to look at is worship the Lord Almighty to whom belongs salvation, power, and glory, and who reigns on high. Kind of focus our attention on on the great king. And then finally, I want us to come and worship the bridegroom as the prepared bride. That's, those are the three places I want to go this morning. So first, worshiping the king begins with weeping. Now, I, as I've already said, that's a strange place uh, to start a sermon about worship is to talk about crying or weeping. Um, but I want to start by saying we all have a worship problem. I already highlighted this a little bit in my introduction. All of humanity has a worship problem problem. Uh, like Dylan says, you got to worship somebody, either serve the devil or serve uh, the Lord, but one way you're going to worship. And the problem is that in our foul, fallen condition, in our fallen nature, our sinful state, our desire to worship hasn't waned, but our desire to worship God in our fallen condition is lost altogether. Romans 1, Paul points this out very clearly in Romans 1. 
the problem of humanity. He says, For although they knew God, they neither honored him as God nor gave thanks to him, but they became futile uh, in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, as fallen sinful humanity, we refuse to worship God, to give him honor and glory. Instead, we exchange that thing that is worthy of our praise and honor and glory, we exchange that for things that are unworthy, the things of this world. Revelation 19 comes within the context of Christ's final judgment. Um, The voice of the multitude that John hears begins with a declaration of Christ's just judgment of the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Now again, we're jumping in. If we had been studying Revelation all along, these terms would be a little more in our uh, sensibilities, but right now it just comes at us like this jarring, what is he talking about? This great prostitute. Um, uh, but without, so without going into too much detail, the great prostitute symbolizes the city of man, characterized as Babylon in the previous chapter. Babylon was sort of a word for the, the, the rebellious city of mankind. Now, was he referring to Rome in particular at this time? Maybe, but it's just a symbolic term to talk about rebellious city of man. Uh, And what at the core was the issue with this rebellious city was her rejection of God and her persecution of the people of God. That's where we see this reference here in these first few verses to Christ avenging the blood of his servants. Those godly ones who had gone out to proclaim the good news who had been destroyed uh, by this city. So what's the picture that's being painted? Christ is coming to judge those who would not worship him, who would reject both him and his people. You see, going back to that Romans 1 idea, our fundamental problem as humans is one of worship. Um, this is just as an aside, because you'll notice I'm talking about weeping. Um, it seems like an odd thing here that there's a lot of rejoicing over the destruction of the wicked. Um, it's a little discomfitting. It's, it's, it's hard for us to take. Um, but I would argue that the rejoicing isn't so much over the destruction of the rebellious as much as it is a rejoicing over the justice and vindication and work of Christ himself. It's rejoicing in the one who came and restored all things. Uh, We just confessed in our Nicene Creed that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back. And we look forward to that not because... We aren't sad for those who have not put their faith or trust in Christ. In fact, Jesus himself, when 
he looks out over Jerusalem, what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. And and I've suggested that our worship actually begins here with weeping. It begins us coming to terms with the radical nature of our rebellion as worshipers and what will ultimately happen if we continue in our rebellion. There is a judgment that's going to come to the glory and praise of Christ. But now is a time where we weep and we cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. Be gracious to us. starts with our own hearts. It begins with us coming to terms with the radical nature of our rebellious hearts, our idolatrous hearts. You see, idolatry is, this is the issue, right? It's worship and honor and praise and glory to the King of Kings or worshiping things that aren't worthy. It's not a little thing. They're the reason that Christ is coming again to judge. If we were to go back and read chapter 18 of Revelation, we would get a tragic and horrific picture of the end of the city of man on account of her idolatry, wickedness, and rebellion. But in the midst of that, at the beginning of that chapter, there's this plea that a voice from heaven makes. It says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plague, for her sins are heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. He's coming to judge. Come out. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, forgive them. for They know not what they do. Friends, the desire of the Lord Jesus is that we would come and worship Him. That we would repent and turn from a rebellion and idolatry and worship Him, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But what does it even mean to worship? I'm talking about this idea in the abstract. What does it mean to worship? Well, you know, we could say, well, worship comes from the old English word to acknowledge the worth of something or someone. Uh, okay. That's a sterile definition. Um, What is worship? It has to do with our affection. What we love most. What are the things that cause us to get up in the morning with the anticipation? Or what are the things that when we don't have them or can't get them, they cause us distress and and put us in a foul mood that make us want to do whatever we can to get it back? What do we think of as most precious and most beautiful and most worthy of our affection and adoration? Adoration, that's, a, that's an interesting word. One theologian noted that adoration is a word that is very hard for us to put into words, to define it. We kind of know it, to adore something. Um, you know, it's, it's that deep affection and love and respect that arises out of our inmost being. It says, I love you. And we, so we talk often this way about our significant other, our loved ones, our wives, our, our husbands. It is, uh, we adore them. But it was firstly a word that's been used for worship of a deity, of God. 
And the problem is that we, the things that we worship in this life that are not God, no matter how good they are, just aren't worthy of that kind of adoration. They're not. And the better question is, do you adore God? I know that I adore things, earthly things, adore so many pleasures of this life. I'll watch every single Patriots game and rise and fall on, well, always rise because they always win. But, you know, we adore things, don't we? But do I adore the Lord of glory? Do I love Christ above all? Do I see Him as the most worthy one of all? If not, that ought to cause me to weep. Knowing that at least in part, my heart remains, part, at least in part, my heart remains in some way part of that city of destruction. Like Lot, who didn't want to let go of what he had, and the the Lord said, get out of the city. And Lot said, but I'm too attached. Where are we attached? The weeping comes, though, as we begin to see the glory and the dominion and the power and the righteousness and the love and the mercy and the grace and the goodness of the King of Kings. We start to weep over our affections of the things of this world that are a we put higher than God when we start to see the greatness of our living Lord. And that's what I want us to consider next. I want to to call us to worship at the feet of Jesus. Come, worship the Lord Almighty, to whom belongs salvation, power, and glory, and who reigns on high. This is the declaration of the people, uh, of the angels here in the vision of John in Revelation 19. And at the beginning of 19, the declaration begins with and ends with hallelujah. So in verses 1 through 3, we see this declaration of the great multitude. It begins with hallelujah, salvation and glory belong to our God. And then they cry out again, hallelujah, in verse 3. For the smoke that goes up forever and ever. And then again in verse 4, the elders then cry, Hallelujah, Amen. And during this time, these three Hallelujahs go back and forth, kind of singing to one another. What is Hallelujah? It's a Hebraism. It's actually the only place in the New Testament that we see the word. It's kind of interesting. But it means praise to the covenant Lord. Praise to the one who has made covenant with us, who is faithful and true and just and righteous. Hallelujah to the covenant Lord. And we note here in this section between verses 1 and 4 that it is three times. Numbers throughout Revelation have significance. In Hebrew in general, three is an important number. 
It is the, the number of the greatest superlative, right? It's, the, it's saying it's the most. Uh, I think Matt might have mentioned holy, holy, holy. That's another three, superlative. The most holy, the greatest. Hallelujah. Praise, praise, praise to the Lord of glory. To the Lord of our salvation. And the first hallelujah... Is, says, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Christ, the King, is worthy of praise because to him belongs salvation. This is, this is the basics where our weeping, our tears, turn to joy, isn't it? When we realize the depths of our idolatry and our sin. And we turn and we see a Savior who Himself gave Himself up for us. He's coming again to judge, but He first came to save. He subjected Himself to judgment. He took upon Himself the wrath and curse of God on our behalf that though we as rebels reject him, spit on him, crucify him, turn our backs on him. He laid his life down that we might have eternal life. This is where weeping turns to joy. Knowing that Christ saves. Hallelujah. Glory belongs to him. Salvation belongs to him. Glory belongs to him. There is none like him who on the one hand bore the crown of thorns and yet on the other hand is seated at the right hand of the Father and when he lived in this world showed forth the glory of the Father. He was the incarnate word, the eternal word made flesh, full of glory and truth. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with shame, yet he is risen and glorious and is seated at the right hand of the Father as our Redeemer and our great intercessor and who is again coming in power. He is full of glory. Hallelujah. Glory belongs to him. Hallelujah. Salvation belongs to him. Hallelujah. Power belongs to him. He alone is able. He alone brings justice and righteousness and truth. He alone conquers the evil one who him, he alone is the one who conquers sin and death and breaks the power of sin. He alone is able to redeem a sinner like you and me. He alone is powerful. Hallelujah. Praise to our covenant Lord. And King. Notice the description of the praise that goes around the throne. So I've, I've kind of focused in on the words that were used, but now I kind of want to focus in on the situation. We have this incredible picture of the throne room of God. Uh, it was no little praise, right? There was a throng in heaven crying out with a single voice. Uh, the elders... And the four living creatures, the most glorious in some way, there, bent down on their knees and prostrated themselves 
before God. They fell down on their faces to worship God. And then notice this a little further along. After the voice of the angel calls the people to praise again in the multitude, uh, what do we hear? Sound like the roar of many waters and peals of thunder. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you've ever, uh, I've experienced moments where I've stood by a cataract, a waterfall, and I've tried to talk to somebody, and they may be right there, and it's outside. There's this overwhelming, deafening roar of water. I can't, I can't imagine what it was like. And I know what a peal of thunder sounds like. A sporadic peal will cause me to jump, right? Especially if it's close by. Imagine peals of thunder over and over again. That's what the, the sound here uh, is, uh, is made to picture. And it's, it's kind of hard for us to comprehend. Just yesterday, I, I mentioned that we were at Presbytery, and there was maybe a hundred of us. I think that's being generous. I don't know, somewhere around a hundred. Mo- mostly men, a few women, but mostly men. And we were gathered in uh, for worship, and we were singing some of the great hymns. Uh, a mighty fortress is our God, how firm a foundation. And, and as we sang these hymns, we raised the roof. It was, it was awe-inspiring. It was only a hundred people. It was a small, tiny foretaste. And yet in that moment, as I worshipped, I was overwhelmed by a hundred people singing. You see, our hearts long to worship, to acknowledge that which is worthy of praise and honor and glory. Friends, there is only one. As we contemplate what it means to worship, we have to put before us a grand view. That's what this is. A grand view of who God is, of who Christ is, of His power, of His majesty, and a grand view of the amazing, powerful working of the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And I have to ask, are we overwhelmed by Him? I encourage you, I welcome you into the being overwhelmed. Come, worship Him, the one who is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Finally, come and worship the bridegroom as a prepared bride. The picture that's painted uh, here uh, in these last few verses, starting in verse 6, is the picture of a wedding feast. Um, In the life of the first century Jew, uh, a wedding consisted of sort of two major parts. Um, The first was a betrothal. Uh, It's not like our engagement. Our engagements are usually a little less significant. It was uh, a done deal. It was essentially a, a marriage without the consummation. It was... A togetherness. We will remember Mary was betrothed to Joseph, right? Um, it was married, but it wasn't consummated. It wasn't finished. It wasn't completed. And what would happen is there was a pledge or a promise that had been done, but the bridegroom would, and he would pay his dowry for the bride. But then there would be a second coming. The, 
the, the, the bridegroom would then come a second time and there would be a large feast and the wedding would then be consummated. Following that would be the final step, this wedding feast. And from what I've read, those feasts could last up to seven days. They were not some, you know, couple hour thing that went on and went on and on and on and on. It was a huge uh, celebration. And so it is with the picture of Christ and his church. He came once. He paid the price for his bride. In fact, he gave everything for her. He gave his very life for her. But he's coming again to bring her home to glory. And here in Revelation 19 is the picture of that consummative wedding feast, that final place where the wedding will be actualized and realized. Um, There are a couple things to note about this moment. We see in the text first is that the bride prepared herself. Um, She made herself ready. What does that mean for us as a church? If we think of ourselves, and we're to do this, to think of ourselves as the bride preparing for the bridegroom to come, how do we do that? How do we prepare ourselves? Well, I think it means getting ready for that day. Uh, I've been to a few weddings. I've performed a few weddings. um, And I can tell you there are a lot of things to get ready. Uh, it stresses me out. I, as the pastor, you know, I have to take care of ceremony and all the details with regard to that in coordination with the, the bride and groom. But when I look at the eyes of the bride and groom and all the details that they have to, to, to figure out, and particularly the bride as she's getting ready, I have no idea. You brides out there who've been brides, you know what it means to get ready to prepare for that day. It's a big deal. So how do we prepare ourselves for Christ's coming? For one, we put death, or we put to death sin. We walk in newness of life. Call this the process of sanctification. This is what we do. We, we walk in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit in newness of life, and we step forward from one degree of glory to another. We are preparing ourselves as a bride, preparing herself for the groom for that day when we will be perfected. But there's a, there's a second thing that I think we do. And, and this may start to get at sort of my heart as we think about worship, is that worshiping now, here, with God's people, is preparatory. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I think we are worshiping God. It's not just practice. You know, there's a wedding rehearsal. And at every wedding rehearsal I do, I kind of tease with the bride and groom. I have to practice everything, and we'll go through the vows, and I'll say, um, uh, I now promise, and solemn swear, uh, tomorrow... Like I, mean, I, don't, I don't make them go through the actual vow because there's something that isn't happening at that moment. It's just kind of a fun way to make a, a very stressful situation a little lighter. Our worship now is not like that. We are indeed worshiping the living God. But in another sense, it is preparatory. It's like a child learning to walk. They want to walk. They desire to walk. They, they 
try to pull themselves up with their hands and they take a few steps and they fall down. And in some way, in some measure, our worship, this side of glory, is like that. And it's a process, isn't it, as we worship? Uh, there's a, uh, a philosopher slash theologian, more philosopher than theologian, with whom I dis- di- differ on some major pieces, but on some things I agree with. And one of the things that he talks about, particularly, is having a liturgy of life. To think about our life in terms of this kind of worship practice, not just here in the worship service, though certainly that, but in all of life, to think about the things that we do that shape us in worship. Let, let me give you an example. We, we, uh, we have children's church, and we very explicitly say in children's church that we are shaping them. They're not, they're not learning a whole lot of cognitive knowledge, but they're going through the rhythm of worship. And so it is for us, too, as we come together and we engage our bodies and our minds and our, and our affections and our senses, as we engage all these things and go through the rhythms of worship, we are preparing ourselves for that glorious day when we will stand before God in full array of beauty and worship Him. Perfectly, of course, because He will perfect us. But now, we're preparing ourselves. We're going through those rhythms of worship. We're practicing. So a child learns to walk. He toddles. We don't say he's not walking. He's toddling around. He's walking. Or she. But then they learn to run. And then they fall and trip over everything in the house. And then they learn to run and jump. Before you know it, they're playing uh, soccer for the local soccer team. And then before you know it, they're dancing in the ballet. And they're doing amazing feats with their bodies. This is what children do. They grow up and they become these spectacular specimens until they reach our age and they fall apart. But that's what we're doing when we worship We are bringing praise and glory and honor to God like toddlers, maybe walkers and runners. We come together, and that process by which we prepare ourselves for that glorious day when we will be gathered round the throne of glory, prostrating ourselves and crying in one voice, Hallelujah! Hallelujah to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the glorious reigning Savior. But I want to note and end on this point, and I'm done. This is, I'm, I'm, this is it. <laughs> Look at verse 9. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Friends, Christ has clothed us. He is the one who's preparing us. He has put the robes of righteousness on that belong to Him so that when God looks on us, He sees a beautiful bride. 
in all its splendor and array because when God looks on us, he sees Christ himself. This This is the beauty of this whole preparation process as we worship. We come together as weak, insignificant, small congregation and we lift up our weak praise to God and what he hears is that great, glorious multitude crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because what he sees is Christ. Us clothed in the bridegroom's garments. What a glorious hope. The whole text ends with this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed. We're blessed. In Christ, we're blessed. These are true words. And what does John do? He falls down and worships an angel. And the angel says, what are you doing? It's not me. Don't worship me. Worship God. That's our call. Brothers and sisters, as we come together week in and week out, as we prepare ourselves for that glorious moment in time when Christ will come and judge the living and the dead, and he will be exalted by all the host of heaven and by every tongue in heaven and earth, declaring him Lord of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.